All right, well, good morning, everybody. Let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to Genesis chapter 26. Taking a look this morning at verses 23 through 25. The title of our message this morning is No Other Name. No Other Name. And uh, as you're turning there, just as was mentioned um, in the announcements, just a brief reminder, it's easy to remember that everything this church does from 11 to 12.30 will instead be from 10.30 to 12.00 next Sunday morning, and the following Sunday. So if you don't keep that in mind, you might think you missed the rapture or something like that. And then this Saturday, 6 to 7, um, Christmas Eve service, which is always a lot of fun. I actually give a short message there, and some of you don't think I can do that, so you want to come just to see if that could really happen. We um, are in a section of the book of Genesis where the focus is on Isaac. In fact, typically Isaac is a minor character. In other words, his story is mentioned alongside Abraham earlier in the book. And Isaac's story is going to be mentioned alongside Jacob once we hit chapter 27. But here in chapter 26, Isaac, the spotlight is completely and totally on him. He is the main man, so to speak. And so we're at a section of chapter 26, verses 23 through 25, where we have a record of Isaac's sojourn in Bathsheba. So we have, in terms of an outline, our verses this morning, Isaac's journey, verse 27, Isaac's covenant, which is really the Abrahamic covenant, verse 24, and then Isaac responds to truth, which gives us a picture of what worship is, verse 25. Uh, Notice, first of all, Isaac's journey. Genesis chapter 26 and verse 23. It says, then he, that's Isaac, went from there to Beersheba. Where was he before? He was at Gerar. That's where he was interacting with Abimelech. And he leaves kind of the wadi or the valley of Gerar and heads towards Beersheba. I usually like to point out when these places of geography are mentioned that this is real history. That's how the Bible reads. There's a mindset that says, let's separate history from faith. The Bible does not allow you to do that. It records real geography, real places, in real time, with real people. And that needs to be emphasized over and over again because our youth are coming of age in the school system where basically they are taught that we, with the PhDs in the school system, will give you the real history. And what you guys do on Sunday morning, that's just your religious stuff. The Bible knows no such artificial distinction. The Bible is not primarily a historical book. That's not why it was written, but it took place in a real historical context. And so when you're reading the Bible, you are reading history alongside the great lessons of faith that we're to learn from these historical accounts. You move down into verse 24 and you see the covenant. It says, the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant 
Abraham. Now we have Isaac's covenant, which is really a reaffirmation of the covenant that God gave to Isaac's father, Abraham. A lot of things to talk about here in verse 24, but notice, first of all, God's appearance. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, boy, this happens a lot in the life of the patriarchs. Um, God, back in verse 2, had already appeared to Isaac. The Lord appeared to him and said, and now it looks like the same time period, same night, a second appearance from God. And a lot of times we read this, it's easy to become sort of jealous. I mean, I wish God would appear to me and speak. But the truth of the matter is God has done that. God has spoken in three sources. The first source is creation itself. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 says, But the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against godliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what he has made so that men are without excuse. Every time you look at creation, you're getting a theology lesson. It's obvious that God exists because you don't have a design without a designer. And you look at the intricacy of our universe, our world, our solar system, how no two fingerprints of all of the 8 billion people on planet Earth or so are the same, no two snowflakes when examined under a microscope are exactly the same. How our earth is orbiting around the sun, not so close to the sun that we burn to death, not so far from the sun that we freeze to death, but at just the right orbit, just the right length away to sustain life. And how can any rational mind look at that and say God doesn't exist? Any more than you could go into your house and see a a card house built, a house built out of cards. You would say to yourself, well, isn't it interesting how the air conditioning and the fan, you know, put that whole thing together? I mean, if there's a card house, somebody was here earlier putting these cards, you know, into the right design. And so every time you look at our universe, God says men are without excuse. Every human being has an obligation to seek God because God has made his existence plain. The second source God has spoken in is his, in his, is in his word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, For all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. Gee, I wish God would speak to me. Well, just open his book and read it. Well, you don't understand, Pastor. I, I, I want an audible voice. Okay, well, read the Bible out loud then. I mean, this is the spoken word of God. And then, lastly, and this is apropos for this week, as we prepare ourselves to celebrate the birth of our Savior, God has spoken in his Son. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Other passages in the same context talk about how the Son, through his birth as a human being, has explained the Father. It's interesting that that word explained is exegesado, if I remember right, where we get the word exegete. If you're a good exegete of the scripture, you're someone that can derive its meaning. That's who the Son, Jesus Christ, is. 
because he was one of us, took on human flesh, at the point of the virgin conception, added humanity to eternally existent deity and was born into our world. We have an exegesis of God. What is God like? Jesus reveals that because he's one of us. You look at Jesus, you read the accounts of Jesus in the Gospels, and you have a magnificent exegesis of God the Father. And so very clearly, God has spoken. The book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says after God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, that through whom also he made the world. One of the great privileges of my life was studying book of Hebrews under a man named J. Dwight Pentecost. Highly recommend his commentary that you can find out there. It's called A Faith That Endures. And I remember when we were in this particular passage, as I was sitting under him, he would say the way the Greek actually reads here is it says, in the last days he has spoken to us in son. In Son. In other words, the Son of God is the perfect revelation of the speaking of God. The disclosure of who God is. Of course, this is one of the things that caused the patriarchs to stand out. God, going all the way back to Genesis 12, verse 2, told the patriarch Abraham, I will bless you. And God spoke audibly to Abraham. Arnold Fruchtenbaum has the paragraph there showing all of the different verses, but he spoke audibly to Abraham seven times. And yet the revelation that God has given to you, A, in creation, B, in scripture, which is a completed canon, and C, in son, is so much higher and so superior. It's just a matter of applying a little bit of mental diligence to understand God. I can't think of a more important subject than to discover or learn about God. And God wants us to understand him because he has spoken to us in those three sources. You'll also notice in verse 24 that God identifies himself. Verse 24, the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. In other words, the God that I was when I was with Abraham is the same God that is now, that's with you, Isaac. This is a characteristic of God that we call his immutability, the fact that he doesn't change. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, God says, I, the Lord, do not change. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good thing given and every precious and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Isn't it nice to know that in a world of constant change and in a world of two-faced people, metaphorically speaking, the fact that change is all around us, God says, I don't change. And thank the Lord for that, because if he changed, he could say, oh, you know, uh, Andy, remember those sins of yours I forgave? I don't forgive those anymore. I hope you understand how different that is than the doctrine of Islam, where they believe that Allah is a deceiver. This is why in Islam there is no assurance of salvation. 
because you really don't know if you've done enough good deeds to merit God's goodness in the end time judgment. Even, even if you did, maybe God said one thing and means something else. Maybe he changed his mind. How, how different we have here in the scripture the immutable or the immutability of God. And then God reveals himself and he gives an admonition. Also in verse 24, the Lord appeared to him the same night. I am the God of your father Abraham. Look at this. Do not fear, for I am with you. Why would he say do not fear? Well, we saw a paragraph or so earlier back in uh, Genesis chapter 26, verses 6 through 11, Isaac told a lie. And he told a lie, she is my sister, because he was afraid. God is saying, what what are you afraid of? Don't fear. So we have this um, admonition, do not fear, a command is given. This is interesting because this actually came up this week. Um, I had an opportunity to be interviewed by a radio host in Canada with all of the legal unleashing of the Canadian government against pastors. You've probably aware of some of those things that have happened. And she brought up out of the clear blue, Revelation 21, verse 8, that we as Christians are not to be afraid. She said that's actually the characteristics of the unsaved that are in the lake of fire. And she's absolutely right. Revelation 21, verse 8 says, these are those that don't know Christ, but for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Every time I look at that verse, what jumps out at me is the very first characteristic of unsaved people is they're cowards. I would think some of these other sins like murderer or something like that would go first. But God says the first thing that characterizes unsaved people is they're afraid. So obviously if we are people of fear, we're not walking in what God has called us to be. The unsaved people are afraid. They're afraid of their own shadow. And yet here God gives a command to Isaac, do not be afraid. You don't have to go around lying saying she's my sister because you're afraid of what Abimelech will do to you. After all, fear of man is a snare. Don't don't be afraid. Google or however you do your Bible searches, um, how many times in the Bible it says do not fear? The last time I looked into that, the Bible says that 365 times. 365 times the Bible, different words are used, but it says, do not fear, do not be afraid. And here we're speaking of the fear of man. And I think the number 365 is very, very interesting because that's one admonition for every day of the year. Every day you wake up. At the end of the year 2022 and you move into the year 2023, God says, the first thing he says to you is don't be afraid. The next day he says the same thing. And he says the same thing over and over again. He says the exact same thing to Isaac. And then one of the things I really appreciate about God of many things is he gives the reason for the command. I mean, why not be afraid? Everybody else is afraid. The unsaved world is afraid. Well, God gives a reason there. In verse 24, do not fear, command. Why not, God, reason, for I am with you. I mean, if God is with you always, what's there to be afraid of? Jesus, in Matthew 28, verse 20, sending out the disciples on the Great Commission, most of whom, 11 of whom, are going to die a martyr's death of some sort. 
What does he say? He says, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. I mean, no wonder these guys could look death right in the face. What's there to be afraid of if God is is with you? Yeah, but they, they might take my house. They might take my money. They might take my retirement account. They might deplete everything I have through inflation. That causes a lot of anxiety, financial worries. But what does the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 5, say? Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. Why should I be content with what I have, Lord? I need to, you know, hoard and, and stash away for the rainy day, right? No, God says, be content with what you have. For he himself said, I will never desert you and I will never forsake you. Oh, well, if that's the, the promise I have from God, suddenly uh, fear of man, financial fear, fear of running out of resources, I guess that doesn't apply to me, does it? Because God will always be with you. He's your provider. One of the things that's interesting about the ministry of the Spirit is the Spirit was very active in the Old Testament. But the Spirit's rules of dealing with man changed on the day of Pentecost. A change of rules. How did the Spirit operate in Old Testament times? It says in 1 Samuel 16, 13, and 14, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon. See that? Not in. Upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed. Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. So the spirit comes upon and could leave. That's how the spirit operated, the best I could tell, in Old Testament times. But Jesus in the upper room, anticipating the age of the church that we are now living in, said there's a new set of rules that are about to be birthed, Acts 2. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you for how long? Forever. You mean no more departing of the Spirit? And he goes on. I mean, if that's not enough, it gets even better. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot see because it does not see him or know him, but you know him, don't, you know, They knew about the Spirit. What he's announcing here new is the change of rules of the Spirit. But you know him because he abides with you and will be what? In you. I mean, not on me temporarily? Nope. Inside of you forever. That's what he means when he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't get yourself away from God if you wanted to. Now you can grieve His Spirit. You can quench His Spirit as a child of God. But you can't get rid of Him. And that is an amazing promise that He has given to us. And if, if all that is true, and it is, why, why in the world would I be afraid of anything? Or anyone? He goes on and He talks about, as he's revealing or reiterating the Abrahamic covenant, he goes on and he reveals God's blessing. Also in verse 24, the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear for I am with you and I will bless you and I will multiply your descendants. First thing God reminds Isaac of, two things really, is I will bless you. That's exactly what God said to Abraham back in Genesis 12, verse 2. I will bless you. 
you realize that as a child of God that your blessings are maxed out? Yeah, but Lord, bless me a little bit more. God says, I can't. It's maxed out. It's in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 3, written for the church-age believer. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. In other words, it already happened when I trusted in the Savior. He blessed me. I don't have to go to God, you know, crawling on my knees asking for a blessing. God says, look at your bank account, spiritually speaking. And what has he blessed us with? With 98%, no, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I hope you understand this as a child of God. You may not be in the fanciest car or live in the biggest house or have the nicest job, but as far as God is concerned, your blessings are completely and totally maxed out. You do not have to give money to an organization to get God to bless you. Well, then why should you give? You don't give to get blessed. You give because you are blessed. It's a totally different motive. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What did uh, Jesus say to the church at Smyrna, the suffering church? the church that was probably on one of the lowest rungs of poverty human beings can descend to. What did he say to that church in the book of Revelation? I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but but are a synagogue of Satan. I know all about those persecuting you. I know all about your earthly poverty. I know all about your tribulation, but you are rich. How can he make a statement like that because of what Paul just explained in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3? In the Old Testament sense, Isaac is reminded of that. You're blessed. If you're blessed and I'm with you, you don't have to go around telling tall tales like you just did in verses 6 through 11. And part of that blessing is I'm going to multiply your descendants. You see that in verse 24 also. I will bless you and multiply your descendants. Um, the multiplication of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are analogized, going back to verse 4, as the stars of heaven. Verse 4, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. It is sort of interesting The late creation scientist, Dr. Henry Morris, talks about this in one of his books that, and he has all of the historical records of all of the philosophers that felt they could number the stars. They all had some sort of count. And God to Abraham said, come outside and count the stars, Genesis 15, and then God says, if you can count them. Ha, ha, ha. You're going to be counting a long time, Abraham. As the stars are innumerable, so shall your descendants be innumerable. And God all along knew that man in his finitude could never number the stars, even though man always thought that he could. And here we are in the 20th and the 21st century with all of our technological innovations like the Hubble telescope, and we finally figured out what God said all along is true. There are so many stars in our galaxy. There's so many stars that we're not even aware of that we have no ability to, we don't even have a number big enough to count them all. And that's what Isaac has promised. Other... Um, Figures of speech are used elsewhere in the book of Genesis as the sand of the seashore. 
so shall be your descendants. It's a lot of people. Another uh, figure of speech is used as the dust of the earth. So shall your descendants be. So it's a promise of blessing and it's a promise of a multiplication of descendants. But watch the Apostle Paul very carefully in the book of Galatians. As he's commenting on this seed. He says in Galatians 3 verse 16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. Paul's saying, hey, here's something about interesting about the word seed is it's a collective singular, meaning a noun that could be used equally in the singular or the plural. It's like the word hair. Are you talking about an individual strand of hair or a head of hair? Hey, Andy, you got your hair cut. Yeah, I got this one cut right over here. Um, that's how the word hair is. It could be individual. It could be collective. The word sheep. Are you talking about a flock of sheep or an individual cute, cuddly sheep over here? The word sheep is a collective singular. Paul says that's true with the word seed. And I think what Paul is saying, interestingly, in chapter 3, verse 16, kind of reminds us of another important verse, doesn't it? John 3, 16. That's an easy way to remember this. That yes, Abraham and Isaac, you're going to have innumerable seed, but keep your eye on one. One seed is coming. I mean, the plurality is wonderful, but even more wonderful is the singular that's on the way. Jesus Christ. And why would we ever get the idea that there's a singular seed coming to undo the damage that was done in the Garden of Eden? We get it all the way back into Genesis 3, verse 15. When we were in that verse 15 or 20 years ago, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, but you shall bruise him on the heel. Right at, right at the dawn of human history, God puts the human race and the devil himself on notice that there's coming a singular seed through the innumerable seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who will undo the damage. And what a wonderful time to think about that this time of year. Because as we celebrate that this time of the year, we're celebrating the birth of that seed, Jesus. That hell itself, through through every obstruction it could to prevent that seed from being born. If you know Old Testament history, and you know a little bit about the birth narratives, Matthew 1, Matthew 2, early Luke, Satan throughout every conceivable obstruction he could to prevent that seed from being born. And yet God superintended and the seed was born and that had to happen because if it didn't happen, then God would be a liar. So Isaac, you're blessed with seed. And he goes on and he explains the basis of the blessing. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. I mean, why is God speaking the way he is to this man Isaac? Because God made a promise in the previous generation to his father. The promise is actually more than just a promise. It's actually a covenant. The Hebrew word that's used there, Genesis 15, verse 18, is berith, where God bound himself to a covenantal structure. And the way covenants were entered into during this time in the ancient Near East is they took animals and killed the animals and divided the animals into different deceased animals into bloody different body parts and the animal pieces were 
arranged in two parallel rows and the parties to the agreement passed through the animal pieces. And in so doing, they were saying, if we don't keep our obligations under the covenant, then let us be torn asunder as these animals have been torn asunder. That's why when you entered into this covenant, you were as good as dead. Because you no longer lived for yourself. You lived to fulfill your obligations under the covenant. It's just in this particular case, something very interesting happened. God took Abram and put him to sleep. Same Hebrew word used there is used in Genesis 2, where God put Adam to sleep and formed his wife from his side. And God by himself, as represented by the oven and the torch, passed through those animal pieces when one of the parties to the covenant was sound asleep by God's design. And in so doing, God is saying, if I don't do exactly what I said I would do in all the terms of the covenant, then let me be torn in half as these animals have been torn in half. And so that's why it says here, as... Isaac is promised these things. They're promised for the sake of my servant Abraham. Because he is the one that received this covenant that we call the Abrahamic covenant. Which is the foundation of God's whole redemptive program. If you don't have the Abrahamic covenant, you have absolutely nothing. Because in the Abrahamic covenant, God promised three things, land, seed, and blessing. The land is amplified in what's called the land covenant. Deuteronomy 29 and 30, it doesn't change the terms, it just adds more clarity. The blessing is amplified in what's called the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And the seed, which is what we're looking at here, is amplified in the Davidic covenant. Second Samuel seven twelve through sixteen, a thousand years before Jesus was born. In other words, that that seed, individual seed coming from many seed, must be born through a specific lineage called the lineage of David. That's why when you read the Christmas story, I would encourage you to do that with your friends, family, loved ones. Christmas Eve or Christmas Day sometime this week, you'll see some genealogies. One in Matthew 3, excuse me, Matthew 1, the other one in Luke 3. And you will see figured prominently in those genealogies, one tracing Christ's lineage through his mother, Luke 3, the other tracing Christ's lineage through his Legal father, Matthew chapter 1, you will see in both of those genealogies the name David. Either way you slice it, Jesus is the Davidic descendant in fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, originally promised in the Abrahamic covenant of innumerable seed, but amplified and given greater clarity in the Davidic covenant. Jesus is very special. And after you hear the, or actually see and hear, because it says the Lord appeared to him, that's visual, right? The Lord said to him, that's audible. After you see and hear something like this, what do you do? I mean, what would you do if God gave you that and reaffirmed to you the Abrahamic covenant? And obviously this Abrahamic covenant can't be conditional because Isaac dropped the ball earlier in the chapter. This is obviously something totally unconditional. You know, it's, it's just like your salvation. It's a free gift from God. 
It's yours. But pastor, I dropped the ball last week. Well, so what? Yeah, there's temporal consequences to sin, but they can't undo your eternal security. Because God got you in on this without human works. So if it's not based on human works, I don't have to sit around worrying about my own works to make sure I'm keeping what he promised. You're brought in by grace. You're kept by grace. That's that's the pattern of God. Going all the way back to what he said to Abraham and what he is speaking here to Isaac. And so this is an astounding thing that Isaac has seen and heard. And when you see and hear that kind of a thing, what in the world do you do? Well, verse 25 is a record of four action verbs that Isaac gave himself to. The first action verb is he built. Is he building to somehow add to the promise? Nope. He's building because he's responding to the promise. See, God in the year 2023 most likely is going to call a lot of people to do a lot of different things. To step out. to Be used of him. And you're not doing it because somehow you think that your salvation isn't quite adequate. And somehow you've got to hold everything together. You're doing it because of the promise that he's made to you, which is unreal from a human perspective. And you don't even know what to do other than to offer your life to him as a living sacrifice. You're not obeying because you're somehow afraid he's going to yank the carpet out from under you. You're you're obeying him because that's what's logical to do. That's what's reasonable. Romans 12 verse 1, you and 2, you offer your body as a as a living sacrifice which is your reasonable service. I mean, this is what rational, logical people do when they're given something that they clearly can't earn. You just say, Lord, I can't believe what I have. Express yourself through me the way you want. So the first thing Isaac does is he builds. And if you look at verse 25, it's so it says, so he, that's Isaac, built an altar there. That altar, I believe, is to be used for worship. What is worship? Oh, I don't like the church down the street. They don't do music the way I like. My preferences aren't met. I didn't get my liver quiver of the day. See, that that's how we've cheapened the whole concept of worship. We have the worship wars and, and all of these things books being written about worship, very few people can tell you exactly what worship is. I think I know what worship is. I got it from my professor, J. Dwight Pentecost. He said, worship is a response to truth. You hear the truth and you respond by way of worship. Well, should there be a cappella or should it be musical accompaniment? Well, that we can talk about that, but that's not, that's not the central point. The central point is the response. And obviously worship should be biblically accurate. But worship is, is, uh, so little to do with a sensation. It's so little to do with a feeling. It's so little to do with being kind of swept into some sort of ecstasy. It's a response to truth. I do have a pet heresy. My heresy is we may have it backwards in Christianity where we worship first and preach second. Maybe we should reverse the order because in preaching you hear the proclamation and in worship you respond. Actually, at this church, there is an opportunity to do that at the end. So he built an altar. This is the same thing that Noah did. I mean, you go through the whole ordeal of the flood, you survive. 
look at the truth that was conveyed through that concerning the justice of God, the judgment of God. I mean, what do you do when you get outside the ark and, and you've gone through that whole experience? What did Noah do? It's in Genesis 8:20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. Abraham, as we'll see in a minute, did the exact same thing. Uh, this is what Isaac is doing. He, he, he's worshiping. John 4:24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. It's a, it's a reaction of some kind. It's a, it's a response to truth. The second action verb here from Isaac after receiving these promises is he called, watch this very carefully here, on the name of the Lord. Verse 25, so he built an altar and there called upon the name of the Lord. This is what the descendants of Seth did. Going all the way back to early Genesis, it says in Genesis 4:26, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is what Abraham did. It says, after receiving the Abrahamic promises, Genesis 12, verse 8, there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called upon the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord seems like a big deal in the Bible. God reveals himself through his different names. Of course, we've seen many of them in our study of Genesis thus far. Genesis 1, he is Elohim, meaning the all-powerful God. Great name for God is creator. Genesis 2, you have an amplification of his interactions with man on day 6. You'll notice the name in Genesis 2 will switch to Yahweh, which is more of the relational, covenant-keeping God. Fits the context perfectly. Genesis 17, Concerning Hagar and God looking into her heart, God says, I am El Roy, the God who sees. Perfect context for that. Genesis 21:23, he's called El Olam, the everlasting God. Genesis 21:33, excuse me. We get to Genesis 22, where God provides a suitable sacrifice. There, another name is given of God, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Apparently, the name of God is a very significant issue because Abraham and then Isaac called on the name of the Lord. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. I mean, is the name of the Lord that big of a deal in evangelism? I mean, do you really have to bring up the J word? Can't you just give some sort of God talk? It's very interesting in the culture. People love to talk about God, but you mentioned Jesus, that's different. Apparently, Peter thought the name Jesus was a big deal. Because Peter, as recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 12, says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name. Under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Look at that little word must there. That's the same word used in Luke. Remember, Acts is the sequel. Luke is the prequel. Luke 4.43, same author. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Well, is the preaching of the kingdom of God optional, Jesus? No, it must happen. 
in Luke 24:44. It says, "Now he said to them, "These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must." That's our same Greek word. I have the Greek word there in brackets. If your eyes are good, you can see that. Must be fulfilled. Well, is the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy optional? No. It must happen this way. The kingdom of God must be preached. And so when Luke, same author, different book, Luke, the prequel, Acts, the sequel, records Acts 4, verse 12, he uses that word must. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Well, is the name Jesus in evangelism optional, Peter? Because it's a lot more palatable if we can just do some God talk and spiritual talk and not bring up the J word. If I'm understanding my Bible correctly, Peter says that is not an option. You don't mention Jesus, it's not evangelism. Call it whatever you want. But it is not authentic biblical evangelism. Gee, Pastor, why are you going into all this stuff? Because listen to me, folks, very carefully. We're living in a culture right now that is preaching a doctrine called inclusivism. Which is the doctrine that people, whether they hear the name Jesus or not, are saved if their intentions are right. One of the greatest spiritual leaders in the world right now is Oprah Winfrey. And I don't say that tongue-in-cheek at all. There's a lot more going on with her than cooking tips and housekeeping tips and Diet tips. She is preaching a theology. Her theology is inclusivism. Spirituality without Jesus. The name Jesus is optional. And you can pull this up easy on YouTube and and watch her interaction with her studio audience. She says one of the mistakes that human beings make is believing there's only one way. She says there are many, many paths to what you call God. It doesn't matter whether she called it God along the way or not. There couldn't possibly be only one way. There couldn't possibly be only one way with billions of people on the planet. And they give the classical argument, if you're living in some remote part of the earth and you've never heard the name Jesus, J-word, You cannot go to heaven? That's inclusivism. The name Jesus is optional. What really matters is are people seeking God to the best of their knowledge in their own religious system? Well, if that's the definition, we can save ourselves a lot of money by just shutting down our missions committee. Why send out missionaries to talk about the J word? Because we don't think inclusivism is right. I mean, surely, Pastor, these are just ideas that are found in pagan society. You really don't think that Christianity itself would succumb to the doctrine of inclusivism, do you? Let me give you a a couple of examples of people. And when I give you these two examples, immediately your defenses will go up. And you'll say, well, wait a minute, these two people have blessed me. I'm not denying that these two people have blessed you. What I'm explaining is how inclusivism is working its way into, I would call them virtue signalers, within the body of Christ. One of them is Tony Evans. Now, this is in print in his book, Totally Saved. Find this quote on page 355 and 359. Oh, pastor, are you saying God hasn't used Tony Evans? That's that's not what I'm saying. 
What I'm saying is this doctrine is moving in so fast, it's, it's cutting very close to home amongst our own. See, this is why Paul explained in Romans 12, verse 2, do not let the world, Oprah theology, squeeze you into its mold. He writes, in a class I once taught at Dallas Seminary, I inadvertently asked an exam question on material I had not covered in class. One of the students brought this discrepancy to my attention. To be fair, I had to rescore all of the test papers because I could not hold the students liable for information that they had not been given. So the premise is that God will not hold people accountable for a decision they cannot make based on information they have not received. And people in faraway lands who have never heard the gospel still have their own sins to answer for. This means we need to talk about the provision God has made for those who cannot believe. Here's the spiritual struggle at work. When people respond to what they do know of God, he takes personal responsibility for giving them more information about himself. In the case of a person who never hears the gospel and never knows the name Jesus, J word, but who responds to the light he has, inclusivism, God treats that person like an Old Testament saint, if you will. That is, if the person trusts in what God has revealed, God deals with that person based on the knowledge he has, not on the information he has never received. I call this transdispensationalism. Kind of fits the theme. Anything you want to go outside the rules, you just put the name trans in front of it. By this, I mean if a person is sincerely seeking God and desiring to know him and is responding to the truth he knows, if there is no missionary or direct manifestation of God, then God judges that person on the faith in light of what he has received. See, what he's doing here is he's moving into an inclusive theology where he's raising the specter of, what about all the people around the world that have never heard the name Jesus? Well, if they're sincere and they're seeking God to the best of their knowledge, then they're in. This is what Oprah teaches. This is what Tony Evans teaches. It is not what the Apostle Peter taught. It is not what the Apostle Peter teaches. Peter is very clear in Acts 4.12, as his words are being recorded by Dr. Luke, when he says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other, what's the next word? Name that has been given among men by which we must be saved. This is the most depressing sermon I've ever heard, Pastor. Well, cheer up, it gets worse. The evangelist Billy Graham. Are you saying, Pastor, that God has never used Billy Graham? I'm not saying that. Did you know that my own mother was saved at a Billy Graham crusade? I'm not saying God doesn't use these people. What I'm warning against is a mindset that is coming into the church that is taking the church and squeezing it into the Oprah Winfrey model. Compromise. This is an interview that he had with Robert Schuler. You can pull this up very easily on the Internet and watch it. Robert Schuler says to Billy Graham, tell me, what is the future of Christianity? Billy Graham, well, Christianity... And being a true believer, you know, I think there's the body of Christ, which comes from all the Christian groups around the world or outside Christian groups. I think everybody that loves Christ or knows Christ, whether they've conscious of it or not, they're members of the body of Christ. 
pausing for a minute, so you can become a member of the body of Christ without knowing the name Jesus Christ. He goes on and he says, I don't think that we're going to see a great sweeping revival that will turn the whole world to Christ at any time. And that's what God is doing today. He is calling people out of the world for his name. Whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the Christian world or the non-believing world. They are members of the body of Christ because they have been called by God. They may not even know the name Jesus. That's inclusivism. But they know in their hearts that they need something that they don't have. And they turn to the only light that they have, and I think they're saved, and they're going to be with us in heaven. And here's Robert Schuler's reaction. Schuler could hardly contain himself. He was so thrilled to, to get this out of the world's greatest evangelist. This is fantastic. I'm so thrilled to hear you say that. There's a wideness in God's mercy And then Dr. Billy Graham responds, there is. This is um, almost identical to what Tony Evans says concerning sort of jettisoning jettisoning the necessity of of knowing the name Jesus. Now, folks, in my heart of hearts, I, I would love to believe this is true. I would love to believe it. I would love to believe that everyone's in if they're sincere. But that's not what the Bible says. Sugarland Bible Church in no way, shape, or form endorses the doctrine of inclusivism. If some of our missionaries drift into inclusivism, we have an aggressive questionnaire designed to ferret that out, and they will very rapidly lose their support. Because what is the, why go through the hassle of sending out missionaries anyway? if people are just saved by their own sincerity. This is why Isaac is calling on the name of the Lord. He's not doing just the nebulous God talk. He's calling on the correct name. The And I'll do these very fast, believe it or not. The fourth action word is he pitched... It says there he pitched his tent. Sounds like Isaac is growing in his faith because the land is all his from the Euphrates to the Nile one day. And it seems to me that he believes that God is capable of pulling that off. So he's starting to walk according to the promises that he has received. And then the last action verb is he dug. He dug a well. End of verse 25, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. So he pitched, he called, he built, he dug, he stayed there for some time. Now Isaac has not received everything that will be received under the Abrahamic covenant, but he's received the first fruits. The first fruits is the initial harvest that comes in, and when it comes in, you're very, very happy because that guarantees the rest of the harvest. That's why Christ's resurrection is called the first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 23. Because he rose, who else is going to rise? We are because he was the first fruits. And I'm here to tell you that every single promise God has made you as a child of God will be executed in your life. Everything he's promised about future glory will happen. How do I know? One of the reasons I know is you already have the first fruits. What is the first fruits? It's the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. It says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, 
you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge. That's a down payment. Down payment guarantees to the seller that more payments are forthcoming. With a view to their redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Isaac is pitching and digging and he's receiving a first fruits, just like you've received through the Holy Spirit of the whole package yet to be unfolded at a future time. And so that takes us to the end of those three verses, verses 23 through 25. Isaac's journey, Isaac's covenant, Isaac's response. And then, not next week, because we're going to do a Christmas message next week. The following week, which will be New Year's Day, we'll be moving into his covenant with uh, Abimelech and then Esau's wives. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word, grateful for your truth, grateful for the name of Jesus. We do ask, Lord, that if there are people today that are listening to this, perhaps are spiritual, but they've never placed their faith in Jesus, we ask that for them today would be the day of salvation that they would hear the name Jesus, the name above all names, and transfer their hope for their eternity and their future by way of faith exclusively into the God-man, Jesus Christ. And having heard a proclamation of this gospel without compromise, We trust you for the results that many people in this building, many people listening online, people listening after the fact via archive would place their faith in Jesus Christ so as to be saved. We do ask, Lord, that if people are here today that need more clarity on this wonderful gospel that you have entrusted to us, that they would seek out perhaps myself after the service to provide perhaps a greater understanding that they might need. We trust you with this great work. Only you can do this. Convict people of their need to trust in the Savior for salvation. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said.